Amen. We'll turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 16. We've come to the last chapter of the book of Romans. And um, uh, I guess this means we, this is our 16th week. I think we've covered a chapter a night. And uh, let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever read Romans 16? Most everybody gets to the first part and says, well, he's saying goodbye to everybody. And so they leave it alone. And uh, I had somebody say recently, I don't know what you're going to do with Romans 16. There's nothing in there. Folks, there's tons in there. As a matter of fact, it's some of the stuff that I really enjoy because it tells you how everything fits together. I think I mentioned last uh, Wednesday night about Romans 15 that uh, some of the, the things in the, the 15th chapter were especially interesting to me because it gives, uh, helps you get inside Paul's head. Well, Romans 16 helps you get inside the, the workings of the early church. So let's start with Romans 16 in verse 1. Paul is writing to the Roman churches. You'll find out there's more than one. He says, I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of this church, which is at Centuria, that you receive her in the Lord as become a saints, and that you assist her in whatever business she has need of you, for she has been a sufferer, that's a, an assistant or a helper, of many and of myself also. Now, there's um, the first thing out of the bat, off, off the bat that, uh, that Paul identifies is the person that's carrying the letter to Rome. Phoebe is somebody that is, has been entrusted to carry this letter that Paul writes to Rome. Now, there's different schools of thought. The majority opinion is that Paul wrote this from Corinth. One of the reasons for this, there are several uh, hints that that might be the case. Uh, the other uh, option that some people hold to is that he wrote it from Ephesus in uh, Acts chapter 19. If he wrote it from Corinth, he wrote it after Acts chapter 19 when he left Ephesus. But if you remember, Paul's plan in leaving Ephesus was that he would go to Jerusalem through Macedonia and Corinth, or Achaia, literally, but he's talking about the chief cities. So he'd, he'd go through Corinth, he'd go through Philippi, on his way to Jerusalem. And you remember in Jerusalem he was put in chains and then eventually he made his way to Rome, but not the way that he thought that he would go. He said in the 15th chapter, I expect to come to you in peace, not in chains. So he didn't know that he was going to Rome. He had a witness that he was going to Rome, but not the way that he went and not under the circumstances in, under which he got there. So one of the reasons that uh, people believe, many uh, scholars believe that this was written from Corinth is because Centuria is about eight miles from Corinth. And she is a, uh, of the, the saints, a part of the group, the church, in Centuria. And notice it says, I commend unto you, Phoebe, this word commend. Uh, one of the meanings of the word is not the only meaning, but one of the meanings is introduce. So some interpret this to mean that Paul is saying, now let me tell you about the person that brought this to you, this person that's delivering this letter. Her name is Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant. This word servant is the same word translated deacon whenever it talks about a man. Now, when it talks about a woman, when it refers to a woman, it's translated either servant or minister. But it's exactly the same word. Some people have an idea that Paul was a hater of women, and that's why he wrote what he did about marriages, that I wish everybody was like me and, and um, would stay single and so forth for the work of the Lord. And, and there's a lot of different ideas and and opinions and things like that that float around about Paul and who he was and what he thought and what he believed and different things like that as far as, um, you know, the, the ordinary affairs of life, not doctrine necessarily, but the ordinary affairs of life. But Paul had no problem with women whatsoever. Now, the translators that take the same word 
and translate deacon when it talks about a man and servant or minister when it talks about a woman, we might have a beef with them. But what I want you to see, and you'll see it over and over and over again, is that women are treated equally and fairly in the early church. In Christ Jesus, there is neither male nor female. Paul's the one that wrote that to the church, and Paul lived it. So notice what he says about this. Well, actually, before I get even to that, remember when the deacons came about over in Acts chapter 6. The early church had grown. We know that the church is several thousands of people strong. We don't know where they're all meeting. They can't, there's no place for them all to congregate at one time unless it's an open air thing outside the city. But um, uh, there arose a murmuring in the church between the, the uh, Gentile believers and the Jewish believers. The church is still in Jerusalem. So there arose a murmuring because the Jewish believers, or widows literally, were being treated better than the Gentile widows. And so Paul, um, uh, I'm sorry, what's his name? Uh, Peter, yeah. Peter and the apostles confer on, the, on this uh, issue, and they instruct the people to handle their own problem. He said, choose you out among you seven men full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom and men of honest report and let, that we may appoint over this business. Now, the word business is interesting and important in this setting because deacons are to handle the business affairs of the church. Now, business affairs of the church in, in the early days is different than business affairs of the church in the present day. Business affairs of the church in present day has to do with rent and utilities and facilities and all that kind of stuff. We've made kind of a, a corporation. The church has turned into a corporate entity where in the early days of the church, it wasn't that way at all. The business of the church was the distribution specifically, and that was the issue in their day, the distribution to those that were in need. So in other words, they were the ones that would take care of seeing to the, um, the poor in the church being ministered to by the, the, the offerings and the whatever resources they had. But they were uh, business managers, if you will. Now, in the same context, Paul says about Phoebe, he says, I want to introduce to you Phoebe, who is a deacon in the church that's in Caesarea, or not Caesarea, Centuria. Notice what he says to do. He commends uh, them or recommends to them that they receive her in the Lord as becometh saints and that they, the church, assist her in whatever business she has need of them. For she has been a helper and assistant of many and of myself. Paul's talking personally of myself also. In other words, there's some kind of business dealings that she's got in Rome. Now, Rome was the capital city of the world, basically. The Roman Empire is extended to its, uh, its maximum um, outreach. It's as large and as great as any time in the history of the Roman Empire. And so she's going from Corinth or a city outside of Corinth, just outside of Corinth called Centuria. She's going to Rome because she's got some kind of business affair. Now, think about this. Here's a woman in the days of the, the Roman Empire, the latter days of the Roman Empire, going to Rome to handle business. Why isn't her husband doing it? Or why isn't some other man doing it? See, the idea that most people have is that men have always put women down, and, and, uh, and that's certainly been true in a lot of cases in a lot of time periods. But here's a woman that's skilled enough and able enough to travel a, a pretty great distance on her own to handle some kind of business affair in, in Rome. And Paul, hearing of her impending journey, and, and who knows, it may be that that's the reason why he wrote the letter when he wrote it. But at any rate, finding out that that's what her plans are and her 
um, you know, what she's going to do. It's her agenda. He entrusts her with a letter that we now have as the book of Romans and instructs the church to help her in whatever business affairs she has going on in the city of Rome. We don't know what that is, but it's obviously something that Paul didn't just assume that she'd be able to take care of herself, but that she might need help. And so he tells the church, help her. I want you to see the place of prominence that Paul gives this woman. He's not playing favorites. She's the first one he mentions to them. And he says, she deserves your help because she's helped me. Verse 3. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus, who have for my life laid down their own necks, unto whom not only I give thanks, but also the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. So he knows of one church in the city of Rome. It's in the house of of Aquila and Priscilla. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Salute my well-beloved Epinetus, who is the first fruits of Achaia unto Christ. Now, let's talk about Aquila and Priscilla for a minute. Turn back with me to uh, Acts chapter 18. Hold your finger here, of course. We're going to come back to Romans 16. But look at what the Bible tells us about Aquila and Priscilla in Acts 18. Starting in verse 1. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth. Now, here's another um, hint that this is being written from Corinth because that may be where he first met Aquila and Priscilla. As a matter of fact, we know for sure that Corinth was where he first met Aquila and Priscilla. But something has happened to take them from, uh, from Corinth where Paul first met them in Acts 18 to Rome when Paul meets them after Acts 19 or Paul refers to them. After Acts 19, after these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth and found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Now notice they came from Rome to Corinth where Paul met them. So apparently they're returning back to where they come from. Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome and came unto them. Now think about that. Let's stop for a minute and and before we go any further and think about something. They wind up in a, at Corinth is the, at exactly the time that Paul shows up. I want you to see how God works things like a chess piece, like a chess master on a, on a chessboard. Paul is on his way, directed by the Holy Ghost, gets to Corinth, and it just so happens that there's a couple there, Aquila and Priscilla, that have come from Italy. We assume that's Rome because that's where they return to. They've come from Italy at just the right time to hear Paul teach the word. What if they hadn't come to Italy or come from Italy yet? Their whole lives would have been changed and the fate of the church would have been changed because of their lack of understanding or lack of opportunity to hear the teaching of the word. But God's got them in just the right place at just the right time. I think there are going to be things when we get to heaven, we see how God worked them out and we're going to be amazed that he was working all the time. We were thinking, Lord, where are you? He's working behind the scenes all along. So he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy, with his wife Priscilla. Why? Because the Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome and came unto them. And because he was of the same craft, that means they were tent makers too, he abode with them and wrought for their occupation. By their occupation, they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to the the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. 
So what are they doing? They're hearing Paul preach week after week after week after week. Plus, they have the opportunity to pick his brain and hear everything else he has to say at home after the services. Skip with me over to verse uh, 24. This is after Paul leaves. It says, And a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord and began... And being fervent in the spirit, he spake and talked diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Now, this is in Ephesus, not in Corinth, but this is in Ephesus. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom, when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. Notice how God is moving these people around to get them in just the right place at just the right time. They teach Apollos. What Paul has taught them. And notice the change that it makes in the church. Here's now Apollos and a minister. That Paul writes back to the Corinthians and says, I know what you say. Some of you say you're of me. Some of you say you're of Peter. And some of you say you're of Apollos. Apollos has made equal standing with his teaching, through his teaching, and his eloquent speech with Peter and Paul in the eyes of the Corinthians. That's pretty heady company as far as the things of God are concerned. Verse 27, And when he was disposed to pass into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, who when he was come helped them them much, which had believed through grace. For he mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Where did he learn that? Folks, that's what he learned from Aquila and Priscilla. Now they've gotten back to Rome, Back to Romans 16. Greet Aquila and Priscilla, or Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus. Now, one thing you might have noticed that in Luke's account in Acts, verse eight, or chapter 18, both early in the chapter, verse 2, and then later in the chapter, verse 26, I guess, somewhere around there, it mentions Aquila first. He's the husband. Now, why is that? Because when you're talking about in a personal setting or in a, um, uh, in a proper setting, you're always going to leave, uh, speak of the husband's name first because he's the head of the household. Notice Paul does not do that when he writes to the church. He says, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus, who have for my life laid down their own necks. They risked their own lives. Unto whom now not only I give thanks, but also the churches of the Gentiles. He's saying their impact upon my life or their help in my life the fact that they've been willing to risk even their very lives to help me has helped all the Gentile churches. Everybody owes a debt of thanks to anybody that's heard Apollos speak because they were the ones that had something to do with that. The church at Corinth certainly owes them a debt because they helped me while I was there. But notice he mentions Priscilla first. Now, the reason that Paul would do that when he's writing to the church is because she would have to have a more prominent position in the church than he would. Otherwise, he's out of order. There would be no other reason for him to put her name first. Now, he's not trying to uh, follow some kind of decorum, some kind of proper, well, Aquila's the head of the household type thing. He's writing from a spiritual standpoint. He's writing from a standpoint of the people in the church that know who these people are. Their reputation is is well known among the, the churches in Rome. So he puts her first. She's the minister of the group. Well, if that's the case... Who do you think is the one that taught Apollos? 
wouldn't make sense that Aquila would be the one that, that is expounded the doctrine of Paul to Apollos if Priscilla is the lead minister of the two, would it? Something to think about. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Salute my well-beloved Epinetus, who is the first fruits of Achaia unto Christ. What this means is this guy, Epinetus, if I'm saying his name right, and, and I plead guilty on mispronouncing any and every name that's involved here. But this guy, whatever his name is, was one of the first converts of Paul when he was in Asia. And Paul singles him out. He's traveled to Rome and living there now too. And he identifies that he was one of, if not the first converts that Paul had in Achaia or in Asia. Then he says in verse 6, Greek Mary who, is, who bestowed much labor on us. We don't know who Mary is. The word Mary in, in the Greek is Miriam. We don't know who Mary is, but they do. This must not be married, the mother of Jesus. She's in John's care. Church history tells us that she wound up in Ephesus and lived her, lived her life out there where John was the, uh, uh, the pastor of that church for a period of time toward the end of her life. But we don't know who she is. Now notice in verse 7, salute Andronicus and Junia. In the Greek, this word is Junius. Her, the, the name is Junius. We don't know if Junius is a man or a woman. It's a name that could be used for both men and women. Now notice what it says. It says, salute Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen. Paul says, these are my relatives and my fellow prisoners. Now, some people read this and they say, well, see, Paul must have been in prison when he wrote this. He's not. He can't be. It wouldn't fit for anything that's being written, uh, anything that's written or anything he says about his plans to visit. Well, fellow prisoners, what does he mean? He means we're bondservants to the Lord. One of the things that Paul said about himself was that he was a slave of Jesus. That's what he's talking about here. And notice, he, let's read it again. Salute Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners who are of note among the apostles. What's he saying? He's saying these two people hold an office of the apostle. There's a very strong chance, likely in my opinion, that there's a woman that's identified as an apostle. Salute Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners who are of note among the apostles. We know that that means they are apostles because Paul talks about them being bond servants or slaves just like he is. That would have to be tied to the office. Then notice the next thing it says about them. Who also were in Christ before me. They've been saved longer than I have. What does that mean? That means that when Paul was getting letters to go to Damascus to imprison and kill Christians, his family was a part of the was a part of the church maybe not the church in damascus i'm not saying that but think about how that would work on you what kind of guy was he to know that his own family believed in jesus but it didn't matter he was willing to kill anybody that turned against the law of moses this was some guy and i don't mean that in a good way before he got saved so the, he had family members that were born again that were part of the family of god before he was I wonder how that would work on you when you're standing there watching Stephen being stoned. I wonder if the thought ever came to him, this could be my family member. This could be one of my kinsmen. I think it would have occurred to me. Maybe he was so focused and so filled with hatred against Christianity that it didn't matter to him. Guess we'll find out when we get to heaven.
Verse 8, greet Amplius. I'll get it in a minute. Greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Now, notice the thing that Paul says over and over again. Paul talks about people that are personal to him. He's never been to Rome. But he knows of people that have traveled back and forth from there. Rome is, the, the, like I said, basically the capital of the world. And so it's a place where everybody or a lot of people are, are traveling back and forth to. It's a cosmopolitan city. It's the metropolis of the world. And he knows a lot of these people. We have to assume that he knows them not by reputation, but he knows them personally. And notice the people that Paul keeps up with. You'd think Paul being so busy and going to the places that he's gone to and standing before the high priest and then he's on his way to Caesar. He's been, he'll be shortly uh, after he writes this letter standing before King Agrippa and some of the other people and, and prominent people of the land. He's been brought before magistrates and kings and things like that already. He keeps up with people that he knows. But also interesting, at the end of his life, there's only one person that's with him and one person that he calls on. Verse 9, salute Urbane, my, our helper in Christ, and Stachus, my beloved. Interesting that he calls Urbane his helper, but he expresses concern and love for Stachus. Salute Apelles, approved in Christ. What does this mean? This means everybody knows how God is approved of this guy. Now, he doesn't call him a personal friend. This may be somebody that he knows more by reputation. But his reputation is such that everybody knows that he's approved. In other words, only the Lord knows the test that you and I go through. But this guy's is renowned. Wouldn't it be something good to have said about you? You gained victory over whatever came to such a degree that everybody knows? That's pretty high praise, even though we have no idea who these people are. Salute Apelles, approved in Christ, and salute them which are of Aristobulus' household. Now, the word household is not there. It literally says, salute those that are of Aristobulus. The, the, the reality is, though, we know who this guy is. We know exactly who Aristobulus is. He is the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great's the one in the Christmas story that the three wise men go to. We've seen a star in the east. And he conspires, thinking that he's doing it without the knowledge of the three wise men. Go find out where this guy is, this new king that's been born, and come tell me so I can worship too. And when the three wise men figure out and are warned of the Lord not to do what, uh, what King Herod wanted to do, wanted them to do, then they go back another way. So what does he do? He commands everybody from the age, every child from the age of two and younger to be killed. That's the grandfather of Aristobulus. Hold your finger here and turn with me to Acts chapter 12. This is his brother. Acts 12 tells us about who, this, who Aristobulus' brother was. That's Herod Agrippa. In other words, he comes from royal family. Acts chapter 12. Now about this time, Herod, this is Herod Agrippa. This is the brother of Aristobulus. Now about this time, or about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hand to vex certain of the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Herod also. These were the days of unleavened bread. And when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. 
But Peter, therefore, was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for them. And when Herod would have brought him forth, the same night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and the keepers before the door kept the prison. And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shined in the prison, and he smote Peter on the side. Peter is asleep. Knowing that he's facing his death, he's asleep. Now, one of the things you need to keep in mind about this is before Jesus went to, uh, was caught up into the cloud and went to heaven, he told Peter about his last days. He said, when you're old, people will tie you up, will bind you, and take you places you don't want to go. Well, unless Peter has convinced himself that he's old, that time hadn't come yet. Folks, I want you to see how real the promises of God are. If God has to send a, an angel into your situation and kick you in the side to wake you up, and lead you out through what would uh, were otherwise locked prison doors till you get to the outside, that's what he'll do. Because that's exactly what he did to Peter. It says, when Peter came to himself, uh, where is that? Verse 11, when Peter was come to himself, this is after the angel has brought him, led him out of the prison through locked doors that he just pushes open. He said, now I know of a surety that the Lord has sent his angel. In other words, Peter's thinking, this has been a dream. But then he comes to himself, he wakes up enough when he's outside the prison saying, wow, this really happened. Now I know God really did this. So he goes to where the church is praying without ceasing for him, knocks on the door. There's a young girl that answers the door, doesn't open it, but answers the door. Says, who is it? And he says, it's Peter. She says, oh, it can't be Peter. He says, yes, yeah, Peter. So she gets so excited. She doesn't open the door to him. She runs and tells everybody, it's Peter, it's Peter, it's Peter. They say, well, let him in. So he comes in and says he escaped Herod. Now the end of the chapter tells us what happened to Herod Agrippa. Um, Verse 20, And Herod was highly displeased with them of Tyre and Sidon, but they came with one accord unto him, and having made Blastus the king's chamberlain, their friend, desired peace because of their country was nourished by the king's country. And upon a day, a set day, Herod, Herod Agrippa, Aristobulus' brother, arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne and made an oration unto them. And the people gave a shout saying, it's the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately the Lord, the angel of the Lord smote him because he gave not God the glory. And he was eaten up of worms and gave up the ghost. But the word of God grew and multiplied. So back to Romans chapter 16, we know who Aristobulus is. He's a man of great promise. He's a man of great renown. So it says salute uh, verse 10, the last part of verse 10, salute them which are of Aristobulus or a part of his household. These would be servants. These would be uh, those that, that he retained with him as a part of the royal family. These are, these got a group of great uh, number of people apparently attending upon him because of his prominence and his status in the, in the city of Rome and in the Roman Empire. Also, somebody else has mentioned here, Salute Herodian, my kinsman, another, another uh, relative of Paul. We don't know anything about him other than Herodian. Now, some people, some scholars will say that the reason he's referred to as Herodian is because he's part of Aristobulus' household. He's part of the servants and the others that attend upon him. And that's possible. We don't know, but it's possible. But at any rate, Paul identifies him and points him out, singles him out. Salute Herodian, my kinsman, and greet them that are of the household. Here's another word that's not there. Greet them that are of Narcissus, which are in the Lord. So this, these two families, Narcissus and Aristobulus, have some kind of great group of people 
that they're responsible for that attend upon them. They would have to be wealthy people, greatly uh, endowed with wealth, especially Aristobulus because of his royal lineage. And so these would be people of great prominence and great renown. And they've got a whole group of people, apparently, that Paul is aware of that they've brought into the kingdom of God with them. So that's who these people are. Next it says in verse 12, Salute Trophenia and Tryphosa who labor in the Lord. Now these two are sisters. These are two women and their names are definitely without question slave names. So he's not just talking about and it's interesting that the Holy Ghost puts the two prominent families Aristobulus and Narcissus right before and right adjoining with two slave girls that are identified because in Christ Jesus there's neither bond nor free Jew nor Greek, male nor female. So the church is operating, at least as far as Paul is concerned, the church is operating on a level of equality. There is no war on women going on, folks, in the early church. So he says, salute these two ladies, Trephenia and Trephosa, who labor in the Lord. Now notice Paul identifies that these two women, we don't know in what capacity, but these two women are in service to God. He doesn't say in minor service. He doesn't say behind the scenes. He said they're laboring for the Lord. Again, he doesn't exalt one person above another. He does identify two of his uh, uh, relatives. One may be a female that are standing in the office of the apostle. And he identifies Priscilla and Aquila who have a church in their home. But outside of that, he makes no mention of anybody standing in the church. Everybody's on equal footing. Salute Trophenia and Trophosa who labor in the Lord. Salute the most beloved Persis. This must be a personal friend of his. Much beloved Persis, which labored much in the Lord. Salute Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Now, this is a, the, uh, something that's also very interesting for me because it identifies that Paul says, I've got a mother. Now, this is not his real mother. This is somebody that um, uh, treats him as a mother. Now, turn back with me. We don't, uh, uh, we've got a pretty good idea who Rufus is. Turn back with me to Mark chapter 15. If you've never seen this before, this will really bless you. Now remember that uh, of the four gospels, Mark is the last one. It's the least specific as far as chronology and, and some of the details are concerned. It's more of a, a general, I know you've read, I'm, I'm sorry, Mark is not the last gospel, it's the third of the four gospels. John is the last one that was written. And so Mark's gospel is one that's kind of like, I know you've heard a lot of the details, and so I'm not going to talk to you about the details so much. I'm going to give you the overview of Jesus and, and his time here on the earth. But he does give us one certain detail, one specific detail, and that's at the crucifixion or on the way to the crucifixion of Jesus. Um... Let's start reading in 19, verse 19, Mark 15, verse 19. And they smote him on the head with a reed and did spit upon him and bowing their knees worshiped him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. And they compelled one Siren, Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Now, if... Think about this. If you're Mark and you're inspired by the Holy Ghost to write the account of Jesus' time here on the earth, why do you mention Alexander and Rufus? 
I mean, I can see that you'd say Simon, but you're, you're going to give enough information to identify who Simon is by describing his sons and identifying his sons. Why? Because both Alexander and Rufus are known in the church. Otherwise, there's no point in making mention of their names. So who is this Rufus? This Rufus is the one referred to over in Romans 16 in verse 13. I'll read it again. Salute Rufus, chosen in the Lord. In other words, he's saying he's got a special standing with God because his father was used to carry the cross of Jesus. Now, does that make him more saved than anybody else? No. Does that mean there's more of a blessing of God upon him than anybody else? No. But he does have a chosen place or a special place because of the way that God used his father to help carry the cross of Jesus. At the time, I'm sure it was looked at as an insult. And the Romans just grabbed somebody that was close by. But you can well imagine that you'd be proud of your father, and proud that that was something that happened with a person in your family. And so what does it say of Rufus? It says, salute Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. The Bible says if you give up lands and houses and fathers and mothers and all that kind of stuff, God will give them back to you. For if you give them up for serving the Lord, then God will give those back to you. God gave Paul back a mother. We make, he makes no mention of his own family other than a casual uh, statement or two in this chapter. We don't know anything that we know about where he came from. We know he was of the tribe of Benjamin and so forth. We know his resume, but we don't know anything about his family. That would indicate to us that outside of the ones that he makes mention of, he didn't have any family in the Lord or that followed him into the family of God is what I mean. He did have a lot of family in the Lord, like this person, this lady, whoever this was, Rufus's mother that became his mother too. Verse 14, here's the second group of people of the second church, house church perhaps, that is referred to by Paul grouping together a bunch of people at once. He says, salute some guy, some guy, some guy, some guy, and some guy. I'm not about to try those. Feel free if you like. But he mentions five people, and he says, and the brethren which are with them. Now, I want you to notice something about the house church. And, and there's uh, all kinds of people that will that come up, pop up from time to time. They're still around today. They say, well, we need to go back to the days of the early church. We need to have house churches like they did in the early days of the church. Can I ask you a question? Who's leading this group? He mentions them all together. He doesn't uh, emphasize one over the other. He doesn't say salute Hermes, the pastor of this group in his church, in his home or in somebody's home. He doesn't say anything like that. In other words, there is no ministry gift that's been raised up at this time at the, with some of these house churches. Now, can I ask you a question? How's the church going to grow without the ministry gifts? Isn't that what the Bible says the ministry gifts are for? To equip the saints to do the work of the ministry? Well, then who's equipping them? That's why it's so important for these letters that Paul's writing. It's so important, and Paul knows of at least three churches in Rome. And there may be more. There may be others that he doesn't know about. But there's at least three churches in Rome that are all spiritual grandchildren of his. We know of some personal uh, contacts that he has. For example, the first guy that he makes mention of, one of his first converts, Epinatus in verse 5, that was one of the first fruits of Achaia, maybe because he was converted Early on in Paul's ministry in Asia, maybe he's schooled enough. Maybe he was there. If he was in Ephesus, he knows of three and a half years of Paul's preaching. 
So maybe he's schooled and skilled enough. Maybe God uses him to help share the truth of the gospel and stuff. But otherwise, how are these people going to know? They hear Jesus preach. Somebody comes through and Jesus is preached. Or somebody shares with somebody else and then somebody else shares with them about getting saved and they get saved. What do they do then? Folks, I, I have to remind you, Jesus did not say go into all the world and get people saved. He said go into all the world and make disciples of people. Make disciples of all men. How do you do that without the teaching of the word? It's impossible. You can't do it. That's why it was so important for these letters, not just for us, but for the letters to be read and sent in Paul's day too. So here's the second church, the second house church, if you will, for lack of a better term. Salute these guys and the brethren which are within. In verse 15, he says, salute another group. Salute Philogius and Julia, Nereus and his sister and Olympus and all the saints which are with them. Notice there are different groups. There are different congregations in the city of Rome. Now, there may be others. Like I said, these are just the ones that Paul knows. This may be all there is. And, and Paul is, has had to receive reports from somebody about these because there's no reason that Paul would have personal knowledge of any or all of these people unless he tells us where he met them now some he tells us how he knows them others he tells us are much beloved but these last two groups of people he just calls certain ones by name which apparently are the leaders of those small congregations or smaller congregations perhaps so he identifies that I know who the people are that are supposed to be in charge salute them and the brethren that are with them but he doesn't know everybody And he doesn't know if anybody else is starting up anywhere along the way. Folks, things were so disorganized. It's an absolute miracle of God that the church survived. Because they went for a long time without having any real structure. Church in Jerusalem had it, and look at what they did with it. But the Gentile churches, by and large, they didn't have much. Paul would stay stay a period of time in some places... In Thessalonica, he stayed four months, looked around, found an older person, say, okay, you're in charge while I'm gone. They've got four months of teaching. I don't care how old they are. They've, they're four months old in the Lord. Tell me how a church like that survives. It's got to be the hand of God. So Paul says, salute these other ones and the saints that are with them in verse 15. Then finally, he says, salute one another with a holy kiss. In other words, he says, I care about all of you. Remember, that was the the one thing that Paul said burdened him more than anything else. The thing that came upon him daily was the care of the churches. I guess so. When Paul realized, and, and who wouldn't realize, it was so obvious to the people that were in that day how fragile the church was, that except for the power of the Holy Ghost keeping them, they didn't have a chance. Because the devil's going to stir up trouble in every, on every hand. He stirred up trouble from Claudius, from the political leaders. Persecution scattering people like crazy. And the persecution was designed by the devil to kill the church. But every time the church is persecuted in the book of Acts and the history that we have, church history. Every time the church is persecuted, the church gets stronger. Because people have to dig in and decide what do they really believe. I've told you before, but the church in uh, the churches in the east, the far east, specifically the church in Korea, prays that the church in America will be persecuted because that's what they were born of. That's where they know the power of God is known. 
They pray that the church in America will be persecuted. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I'm real happy about their prayers. But they understand this is how it works. When the devil comes after you, God shows up. The church in America wants to be comfortable and have God show up every day. And that's not always the way it works. So, he says, salute one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you. Now, verse 17. Here's the last word that he gives. He says, now there's going to be trouble. Now, I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses, contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. Where have they learned it? He's not talking about contrary to the doctrine that's in this letter. He's saying contrary to the doctrine that you've learned. What does he know that they've learned? Well, like I said, they're basically his spiritual grandchildren, second-generation Christians from him and his teaching. In other words, they didn't hear it straight from his mouth, but they heard it from somebody that heard it from him. That's what I mean by second generation or spiritual grandchildren. Two generations haven't gone by, but it's been passed down for at least two, through two different people. From Paul to somebody else and from somebody else to them. And maybe a lot more times than that. But Paul knows and his trust and confidence in the, in the, the power of the word is so great. And, and folks, please understand, I'm not saying he just had this on his own. He learned this through experience. That's one of the hardest things for me to learn when I started pastoring. I'd see people in trouble, and, man, I'd try to rescue them. And I figured out pretty quick, I can't rescue everybody. And some of the things that I did to try to rescue them, I did them more harm than I did them good. Because then the next time they got in trouble, they wanted me to rescue them. But God's big enough to handle it. Paul has learned that. He's learned to cast his care on the Lord, even the care of the churches. But he knows how the devil works. So he says, mark those with cause divisions among you. He does not say, look out for the trouble that the devil's going to bring from outside. What he says is, there's going to be trouble that comes from within. And here's what it's going to look like. It's going to look like people trying to pull you away from other Christians. It's going to be people creating divisions and offenses between you and your fellow Christians in, in the church at Rome. Now, as I said, there's at least three churches here that he's writing to, that he refers to at least. Maybe a lot more than that. But he knows of at least three. There may be other things that God's doing that he's not aware of. Maybe the fact that they don't have any connection with him, he wouldn't mention them to begin with. I don't know. But he knows how the devil works. He always works from within. Mark those which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. For they that are of such, they that are such, Serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by good words and fair speeches, deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has come abroad unto all men. And notice what he says about the churches at Rome. He says, we know how obedient you are to the doctrine of Christ. Does that mean they know what he's, already, what he's uh, told them before? What he wrote to them in the letter? Not a chance. Nothing outside of what Priscilla and Aquila have been able to share and I'm sure they did their best, but who knows how things have changed since the time Paul saw Priscilla and Aquila. I know I'm growing all the time. I would expect Paul would be too. There may be things and truths that he didn't, hadn't, didn't know at the time that he shared with them earlier on. But your obedience, he says, has come abroad to all men. I'm glad, therefore, on your behalf, but yet I would have you wise unto that which is good and simple. The word simple literally means unmixed, pure. 
It's a word that's used when uh, in metallurgy. It's a word that's used in winemaking. In other words, he says, don't mix things together. I want you to be simple, or I want you to be um, simple concerning evil. I want you to be unmixed. Keep yourselves pure, in other words. In other words, he's saying this. He said, don't worry about how smart people think you are. Just keep your heart right. I want you to be wise concerning that which is good. Well, what makes us wise concerning that which is good? The truth of the word. What keeps us simple concerning evil? Minding our own business. It's not intelligence that keeps you simple concerning evil. It's not intelligence or great knowledge that keeps you pure concerning evil. It's minding your own business. It's staying within your own boundaries. Notice verse 20. He says, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. This word bruise is the same word that's used in Revelation chapter 2 about Jesus breaking the nations. Breaking, shattering literally the nations. He's talking about end time stuff. He's telling them almost 2,000 years ago, he's telling them, look for Jesus' return. And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Now he tells who's with him. He says, Timothy and my work fellow and Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsman, salute you. Notice that Paul said he's got relatives, Jason and Sosipater, if I'm saying that right. I'm probably not. He's saying at least those two, maybe Lucius as well. Lucius is probably the one that's mentioned in uh, Acts chapter 13 where it says Lucius of Cyrene was one of the five guys that were there when uh, the Holy Ghost said, separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I called them. Jason is one that comes to him in, uh, in Ephesus in the middle of a riot. Those are men that are with him in either Corinth or, or Ephesus, one of the two places. Most people, as I said, the majority opinion is uh, Corinth. And then it tells us who wrote the letter, who transcribed what Paul said to write down. It says, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, salute you in the Lord. Gaius, mine host, and of the whole church, saluteth you. Now, let me give you another uh, hint that this might be from Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse, uh, uh, let's start in uh, verse 12. It says, now this I say that every one of you saith. He's writing to the church at Corinth. He's writing about the divisions among them. This uh, I say that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, or that means Peter, and I of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank my God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius. This may be the same Gaius that would be his host that's referred to in Romans chapter 16. If that's the case, then Gaius lived in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, lived in Corinth. So maybe it was from Corinth that he wrote. Back to verse 23 of Romans 16. Gaius, mine host, and of the whole church, saluteth you. Erastus, the chamberlain of the city. The chamberlain, the word chamberlain means city treasurer. The treasurer of the city salutes you. What's he doing? He's um, letting the, the Romans know and trying to encourage them. We've got important people in us in our church here too. And Quantus, a brother, we don't know who he is. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. 
Now to him that is of power to establish you. Now I want you to notice these last two verses. Well, verses 26, 25 and 26 particularly. Because Paul is going to say something that's really, really important. It's the key to his ministry. He said, now to him that is of power to establish you. Folks, I want you to know something. There's no way to be established except in the power of God. It's only God's power that can establish you. Where is his power? His power is in his word. That's why the word is the foundation for everything. Now him, to him, that is of power to establish you according to my gospel. Notice how you're going to be established by the power of God. According to my gospel. And the preaching of Jesus Christ. Well, didn't Paul preach preach Jesus? Yeah, but he's saying, I don't have it all. I have the gospel that has been revealed to me, but that's not all that there is, and I don't think that that that's the case. Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. Then he closes up and says, to God only be wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. So he says that we should be and can be established by the power of God according to his gospel and the preaching of Jesus to understand the mystery which was hidden from the beginning of the world. What is that mystery? Now think about the prominence. I'm not trying to embarrass anybody. I'm not trying to put anybody on the spot. I'm really not looking for anybody to answer. I'm trying to get you to think. I'd prefer nobody did try to answer because if you're wrong, I don't want you to be embarrassed. Because who talks about the mystery that was revealed by the gospel of of Jesus that was committed to Paul that all of us are going to be judged by? Doesn't that sound important enough for us to know what it should be? Man, that should be Christianity 101. I mean, that should be ABCs. That should be the alphabet. That should... That should be the most basic fundamental truth of Christianity that there is, shouldn't it? I mean, even if we don't understand the mystery, we ought to know what it is, shouldn't we? Let me read this again. I want you to get the importance of this. I'm going to tell you what it is. Don't worry. Now, to him that is of power to establish you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest. Things are changed now that Jesus is risen. But now is made manifest, and by the scriptures of the prophets, in other words, there were hints in the Old Testament, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known. In other words, he's saying the mystery has been made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. You want to know what the mystery is? The mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Remember when Jesus prayed in John chapter 17? I'm not sure what verse it is. Let me look it up real quick. Jesus is praying. One of the things that he prays is, uh, is in verse 22. John 17, verse 22. This is Jesus' prayer. The last night that he spent with his disciples just before he was taken captive to be taken to, to the crucifixion and the, all the, the stuff that was going on there. He said, well, let me back up a little bit. Um, Let me start in verse 18. He says, as thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. 
And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for those alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Now, folks, that's, that's huge. Please understand what he's saying. He's saying, I'm not just praying for the 11, the 12 minus Judas, who's going to betray me. I'm not just praying for these 11, but everybody that's going to believe on me through their word. Who here doesn't believe on Jesus through the work of the apostles? Everybody does. They were the foundations of the church. They stood in the class of apostleship and the the foundation of the church that even Paul never got to. They were the apostles of the Lamb. Paul was not. Some people have argued saying, well, the, the, the apostles messed up when they chose somebody to replace Judas because Paul was the 13th apostle. Nope. Because the qualifications was, one of the qualifications of the apostles of the Lamb was that he was present to see and hear the things that Jesus did in his earthly ministry. Paul didn't qualify. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the position Paul had in the church. He just didn't qualify for the apostles of the Lamb, which the Bible says are the ones that will are the, the ones that, that are on the thrones, the twelve thrones of Israel that John saw in Revelation. Paul's not one of those. So he's praying for everybody that believes on us through the foundation of the church, which is the whole church. So the things he's going to pray has to do with you. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Verse 22. And the glory. Everybody say glory. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. Folks, there were hints, but never anything that came right out in the Old Testament, anywhere in the Old Testament that said that the result of the Messiah would, uh, would be that the glory of God that Jesus had with the Father before the world began would be man's, ever. And everything about Paul's gospel, everything about Paul's revelation is to show you who you are in Christ, meaning the glory of God that Jesus gave you. That's the mystery. That the glory of God could be in what, would, what used to be sinful man, but now is redeemed and made righteous. Folks, I'm convinced that God sees a lot more in this being part of his family than the church has ever realized. But in the time that we woke up, no wonder Jesus said, the works that I do shall you do also. Because the same glory that he had, he's made available to us. That's the mystery that Paul's revelation is all about. That ought to change the way we look at ourselves. Ought to change the way we look at God. Ought to change the way that we, that we see the word and what God has made available to us through the scripture. Because that's God's end result. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the privilege that we have to read it and study it. Open our eyes, Holy Spirit, to help us understand, not just have head knowledge of it, but to understand spiritually. See with the eyes of our spirits that which Jesus has made available to us. Father, I pray that you would reveal to us the hope of your calling, which is the glory of God within us. That we would know who we are. That we would know what your plan is for our lives. That we would know the power that works in us as believers. More than we ever have known before. 
Father, prepare us for these last days, days when men are getting worse and worse, days when the enemy is trying to accelerate evil in the world, days when men are giving up and yielding to that which is wrong rather than holding fast to the good that they know. Equip us, Lord, that we might be worthy vessels of the glory of God within us, that the world may see Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.